Dom DeLucy, celebrity fat man, has been implicated in the following unseemly act in my mind's eye. He has hocked a fat globule of spittle on Albert Einstein's thick white mane and delivered a devastating karate kick to the groin of Pope Benedict XVI. Michael Jackson has engaged in behavior bizarre even for him. He has defecated on a salmon burger and captured his flatulence in a balloon. Rhea Perlman, diminutive cheers bartendress, has been caught cavorting with the 7'7 Sudanese basketball star Manute Bull in a highly explicit, and in this case anatomically improbable, two-digit act of Congress. Nat, with that intro, we are back at Made You Think. We are back. Yes, we are. I'm excited to do this book. It's something that it's one that's come up a few times in past episodes, and I think we eventually said, eh, screw it, let's do it. It's, it's about time we covered Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Foyer. Yeah, and I'd never read this before, actually, so this was a great excuse to finally read this book because it's been on my list for a while. Which is also kind of the only way that we get to books we want to read anymore. <laughs> it's just by convincing the other person that we should do an episode on it. Because uh, yep. I've got a long list of non-made-you-think books that just continues to pile up until we can get one of them on the docket. So it's a good way to get through your reading list. Yep, and I think we both convinced each other of books earlier today by text. So yep. that we're on, on our list. So yep. You are definitely correct. That's the only way things get done now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and we needed a another uh, quicker read before the, the bigger book next week. So this was very well-timed. You know, for those who don't know, we try to stagger our difficult books a little bit so that we don't absolutely destroy ourselves with our reading schedule. Yeah, so we're not reading Atlas Shrugged every week. Yeah, exactly. When we, we did Sapiens and Homo Deus back to back, that was that was kind of aggressive. That was brutal. Yeah. <laughs> I think luckily, I think both of us had read Sapiens before, which made that one a little bit quicker. Yeah. And then Homo Deus, like, it goes over some of the same concepts as uh, Sapiens to start. So that was still, still hard. <laughs> we have three episodes on those two books, so everyone should definitely... Check those out if they haven't, and the Alice Shrugged episode, and the Godel Shrubach episode, and all of the other long book episodes. Uh, but this is a, a fun book episode, I would describe it. Uh, kind of similar to Emergency by Neil Strauss, which we did earlier in the show's life. That book was all about how to survive a you know massive crisis, apocalypse scenario, government shutdown type event. Uh, and this book is all about how to remember everything, uh, which is kind of a fun topic because most of us are not great at remembering things, uh, especially compared to how we used to be a few hundred years ago or a few thousand years ago. And this book is all about one person's quest to reclaim that ability. Yeah. And it starts with, so I guess a little bit of background on the book. Maybe we should start there. Yeah. So Josh Foyer was writing, I believe it was a Slate article on the World Memory Championships. And that seemed to be, and correct me if I'm if I'm misremembering anything after reading this memory book, <laughs> uh, that seemed to be his intro to the world of extreme memory. That's what that's how I'm gonna describe it. Yeah, because I think he, he goes to the world championship and that's is that where he meets Ed Cook? Or does he meet him later? Nope. No, he met him there. Yeah. yeah. And they went out for drinks and <laughs> and then Ed sort of challenged him or not challenged him, but said, 
you know, he could under his tutelage, he could make him, you know, one of the world champions or, or I think a U.S. champion. Yeah, because the U.S. is traditionally easier to win than other parts of the world. Right. That was sort of Ed's challenge is that, you know, Josh goes out with him drinking after the competition. And Ed says, you know, I bet you could win the U.S. memory championship in a year with my training. And Josh is basically like, all right, you're on. And uh the the spoiler that which I think they do mention at the beginning of the book is that he does win. Right. So Josh goes from zero to winning the national memory championship in the US within a year by working with Ed. And then this book is all about his journey to get there. Well, and just to give a bit of background on why Ed gave that challenge, his position is that it's nothing innate that allows these hyper, you know, ridiculously um well, in my opinion, you know, extreme memory champions right to do what they do it's not anything they're born with it's techniques that they're using and so ed's point is i can train anyone to be like this i'll even train you josh to be you know to be a memory champion and josh is at that point kind of skeptical he's thinking maybe these people are born with some you know ridiculous level of memory maybe there's some iq thing going on here maybe there's you know something that they you know were born with And uh, Ed is basically saying that's not, you know, he doesn't think that's true and I'll prove it to you. Right. And there is a a rich history to back that idea up pre writing being something that everyone knew how to do. You had to memorize basically everything. There was no good way to record information. And we have these epic stories, right? Like pretty much all of the Homer stories, uh, obviously religious texts, most of that was passed down orally for decades or centuries before anyone recorded it. And that was just something people knew how to do, right? Right. Cato would be famous for giving these long, powerful, emotional speeches. And he would obviously, you know, have no notes. He could just go up and run through like a hour, two hour speech with, you know, out anything to prompt him just by using techniques like we cover in this book. And I imagine I uh, what book did we what book was this in amusing ourselves to death, I think, where it talked about the Lincoln Douglas debates, right, where they would take turns speaking for two or three hours. And I imagine during those debates, you can't really have many notes up there, especially if you're creating rebuttals on the fly. And so you just have to be able to remember significantly more than I think most of us have the capacity to remember now. Right. And when you hear about some of the stuff that people in this book can do, it sounds like they must have, you know, crazy photographic memory or be born with some innate ability. But it's really just that we have all lost this muscle for memory that these people have rebuilt for themselves. And it's kind of cool. Oh, definitely. It's it's fascinating. And one of the things that was eye-opening for me, especially in the early part of the book, was how uh, I always assumed, you know, when we look at, at the history of humanity, we think about, okay, when did they start writing things down, right? And what is that? Maybe like three, four or 5,000 years ago, maybe with the Egyptians, we're doing like hieroglyphics and stuff, but it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't writing in the way that we are thinking about it today, where it's every, it's accessible to everybody, uh, everyone's literate for the most part, right? It's like up until fairly recently, being literate was not that common. I mean, by recent, I mean, probably in the last, you know, 150 years, right? Is that, that's probably accurate. Yeah, no, that's very accurate. Like, 
I mean, maybe in the U.S. you'd have a slightly higher percentage, but even there, so you would have to remember most stuff if you wanted to record it. And I mean, even if we look at 50 years ago, uh, or I mean, even think about 10 years ago, right? When you were in middle or high school, like how many phone numbers could you remember? Yeah. Right. The only phone numbers I can remember now are the ones that I've just known for so long that they're that I'm not going to forget them. Right. It's like right. both my parents' phone numbers and my home phone number. And it's like I can almost not remember my sister's phone number. Right. <laughs> like, Yep. It's the same thing for me. I know my house number. I know both my parents' number. I sometimes know my brother's number. I feel yeah. like I feel like it's always on the verge of like being forgotten. And then I. I also remember like one of our neighbors' phone numbers as like the mm. emergency contact. Yeah, but that's it. I can't. I probably knew dozens more before I had a cell phone that stored numbers for me. Yeah, you could just rattle them off. Yeah, and there there's a term for this. I think it's either called the Google effect or the Wikipedia effect, which is that when you know a piece of information is readily accessible via a device or you know a note or something, then your brain doesn't put it into long term storage, basically. Right. It doesn't feel as compelled to remember it. Uh, And I think we get into a little bit of why that happens in the book. But there's these, you know, one, there's all the strategies for memorization. But then two, there's also this element of um, spaced repetition and like having to remember things. And if you don't have to struggle to remember stuff, then you don't remember it. Right. As long as you can look it up, then your brain just like doesn't hold on to it. Basically, it's like, oh, cool. I can just let go of this. Right. <laughs> yeah, because for efficiency, right? Your body doesn't want to do more than it needs to. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a it this is fat this was fascinating. Even just that whole introduction to the book, right, was to me eye opening because I never thought of this that way. I never thought of memory and writing and you know, poetry and religious epics, right, to all be connected. Um I know we've talked about how a lot of the old religious things are poems. You know, like how that's not, uh, that's something I think it came up in Power of Myth or in one of the other episodes, but we've definitely talked about that, but I never put that together with the memory part. But I guess that's, in hindsight, it's kind of obvious because these poems are so long. And if no one, if it wasn't written anywhere, how would you, you know, know all 10,000 lines or however many lines there are? Yeah. Well, not even, not just that, but like the religious texts, right? Where, you know, for a lot of history, part of being a member of the, church or temple or mosque uh would be to memorize like a significant portion or even the whole book that you're drawing from right and to be able to just pull from it at any moment without having to you know look stuff up and that's sort of an almost insane feat that's hard to imagine today for most of us i think but definitely you would i mean i think most relatively large cities in different religious areas would probably have at least one or two holy people who could just you know recite any part of the torah or the quran at a moment's notice or you know spit out homer or <laughs> any of that which is oh, it's i don't know anyone who can do that do you no i don't think i know anyone who knows 10 phone numbers <laughs> <laughs> yeah right, right? like <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, that's why it's fascinating. Yeah. But I think what we're going to do for going through the book is maybe focus less on the whole chronological story that Josh goes through because one, it's just, it's a great story and you should pick up the book and read it for the story. 
Uh, and two, it's a little bit easier to focus on some of the stuff that he learns along the way around memory and stuff that anyone listening can use as well. Uh, cause I, I think those parts are easier to transmit via the podcast, uh, and for us to, to riff on, but we'll drop in parts of the story too, as they come up. Definitely. So I feel like that that's a good mix. Yeah, I, I agree and highly recommend the story. Uh, it's a very entertaining and pretty quick book, actually. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say it probably is maybe four or five hours of reading. Yeah, and, and it is like very story driven, right? It's a fun read and yeah. you learn stuff along the way. I think that's why it does feel similar to the Strauss book, because he, too, does a great job telling a story and bringing you along with him as he's learning all of this stuff. And then you actually get something from it as you're going to. It could have been a very boring book, too. Oh, yeah. It could have easily been super dull. <laughs> yeah, but he did a great job of just when he would get, you know, spend several pages on a technique, he'd pull it back to the story. So, you know, definitely l- listen to the podcast. We're going to go through all the techniques. Uh, and I think that's going to be, as Nat said, probably the, the best way to go through this. But I still highly, highly recommend reading this book. Yeah. So let's just jump right in. So the first thing and this actually comes up in the beginning is when josh and ed are first talking and i think this is when josh is just first probing ed about uh how he does it and ed's trying to convince him that it's nothing special it's just using tricks and ed tells him that remembering names is actually really simple if you just associate the sound of someone's name with something you can clearly imagine and then creating a really vivid image in your mind to anchor your visual memory of the person's face to a visual memory connected to the person's name so that when you see their face, you can recreate this image, which reminds you of uh, your name or of their name. Right. So the, the example he gives is he's talking to Josh and he says, uh, your name was Josh Foyer, eh? Well, I'd imagine you joshing me when we first met outside the competition hall, and I'd imagine myself breaking into four pieces in response. Four, foyer, get it? <laughs> that little image is more entertaining, to me at least, than your mere name and should stick nicely in my mind. Right? And that's like a fairly easy image to hold on to compared to just trying to remember like the pure words. Oh, yeah, 100%. I always compare it to, uh, I'm sure you remember taking like a history class in high school or in college. Yeah. It was so hard to remember like just events, especially dates and names, especially the names that were not westernized. I know that always gave me a lot of trouble Mm -hmm. uh, because there was nothing to anchor it to. Yeah. It was just a, it was just memorization of stuff that I had no no context for, but this makes so much more sense, right? Because now, I mean, who's going to forget Who's going to forget that image of yeah. getting joshed when you first meet and then breaking into four pieces in response? Exactly. It's so much more uh, relevant to you or memorable. And it's something you can fairly easily practice too, right? If you just look at, if you just take anyone's name and try to come up with a good image to go with it. And I feel like after you do it for a little while, you get pretty good. I mean, what would we, so if we're doing Neil Sony. Neil is an easy one because. Yeah, it's just like Neil down. Yep. And then so many PlayStation kneeling down in front of a PlayStation. There you go. Yeah. Kneeling down to. But I, I feel like the thing he mentions that makes it that I always forget is you got to make it like super interesting and visual. Yeah. Right. So you've got to be like kneeling down to like grab your PlayStation and throw it out the window or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. So 
So like I'm imagining, you know, I'm imagining you taking a break from the podcast to like kneel down and grab your PlayStation and throw it out the window because you're so angry <laughs> at something I said. Right? <laughs> How do you know that doesn't happen every episode? No. It could. It could. It's a very expensive <laughs> podcast to produce. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's why we need you all to subscribe on the Patreon. <laughs> exactly. So that Neil can destroy more PlayStations. Exactly. <laughs> we should update the goals every week based on episode references. <laughs> that would be funny. Exactly. <laughs> Your your first name is easy. Yeah. So you can just imagine a gnat. Yeah. Your last name is a little bit harder. Maybe I'd have to break that up into two pieces. Yeah. I, one Maybe one thing you can do is like lion's son. So Ooh, imagine like yes. Simba being chased by a gnat and being like super <laughs> fucking annoyed by it. I'm not forgetting that anymore. That's, I mean, not that I was going to forget your name anyway, but that's, <laughs> that makes it so much easier. If anyone's forgetting Nat's name. It's just Simba being chased by a gnat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's getting like really pissed off and Mufasa is like rolling his eyes at him. <laughs> but yeah, I always have trouble. I'm one of those people who has trouble with names and I remember faces. I, like I'll know I've met somebody before and it's mm-hmm. pretty frustrating, I'm sure for the other person, but also for, for me. Yeah, well, it's embarrassing too, right? It's embarrassing. Yeah. I always feel bad. I've always struggled with this. Yeah, where it's like, I know I've met you a couple of times, so I can't ask you your name, but I also don't remember your name. So usually my tactic up to now has been, I'll wait until somebody else says their name. <laughs> yeah. And that'll remind me, but that, that's not a good tactic because no. that doesn't always work. But on on that note, if you are ever introducing your friend to or like a friend of yours to one or multiple people, like saying everyone's name a lot is a super nice and helpful thing to do Mm. because it's like you have to assume that everyone else forgets names as much as you do because they definitely do. Yeah. And so whenever I'm introducing someone, I always try to just use everyone's names a lot to help them remember. It makes things less awkward, I find. Yeah. Otherwise, you get a lot of uh, man or. Yep. Hey, dude, or how's it going? Yep. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which I am definitely guilty of. Uh, and I always feel bad when I do it. I'm like, ah, oh, I have no idea what your name is. Yeah, it's embarrassing. So that's why even just the first part of this book talking about remembering names, I was like, all right, this is I'm going to use this. This is helpful. How would we do a deal's name? A deal Majid. The first part's easy, right? Like make a deal or dealing yeah. cards, right? So imagine him dealing cards. But then what do you do with Majid? Hmm. I feel like the Madge part of his name could be something magic related. Yeah. So a deal like dealing cards with a wizard hat on and sitting next to like Sigmund Freud, right? The id, (laughs) ego, super ego. So he's dealing cards to Sigmund Freud and a deal's got like a giant wizard hat on. Wizard. (laughs) And Freud is just looking very unamused by it. That kind of works. That might be enough. I have an image in my head. Yeah, that's a fairly that's a fairly strong image. I could I could see that. Oh, that's a good one, actually. That's a good one. Yeah. I'm not gonna forget that one. No. The most memorable one is definitely a lion, a Simba being chased by a gnat. <laughs> Simba being chased by a gnat. Yeah, I like that. Can't forget that because that's so ridiculous too. Right. It's a lion being chased by a gnat. Right. So you're just not gonna <laughs> you're just never gonna forget that one. It's pretty good. <laughs> But yeah, it's a fun game to play, right? When you meet someone, just, you know, trying to make up that image. Yeah, I'm guessing it gets a little faster with practice. Yeah, I'm sh- I'm sure you get faster because a lot of these techniques that, and we'll get into some more of them. But a lot of these techniques, that was my biggest uh, as I was trying to practice them during the book. Which he, you know, he lets you he lets you um, use the same sort of tactics that he's explaining during the book. But as I was trying to do that, 
that was the first thought that came to my head. I'm like, this is taking too long for a conversation. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I could do this on the fly, but it's probably just practice. Exactly. I just need to practice. And I feel like an easy way to practice would be to just go on Twitter or LinkedIn and scroll through and just try to make up images for everyone you go by. Yeah. And then just, just do that quick, quick iterations on it. Because one that was one of the parts of the competition, which I thought was cool, was that he had to go around a like fake dinner party and he had to, what was it? Remember someone's name, occupation and like hometown or something. There were a lot of attributes. Yeah, it was like five attributes and he had to do it for 20 or 30 people. It was a lot of work. It was pretty cool. And that was just one of many events. <laughs> just one of the parts. Yeah, because in the in the competition, you had to memorize a deck of cards. You had to do that name game you had to what was the other one i think there was just one more thing right there was the numbers right the numbers yeah you had to memorize a string of numbers oh and a poem oh and the poem yep you had to memorize a poem too yeah yeah okay so that was names well then he gets to chunking yeah chunking which is a super cool way to kind of hack the process so it's basically like instead of trying to remember things in small units of information remembering them in bigger individual chunks is easier so the example they give is pretty cool which is uh imagine the 12 digit numerical string one two zero seven four one zero nine one one zero one right like that's really hard to remember but if you break it into four chunks 120 741 91 101 and it's easier because like those four numbers easier than memorizing the 12 numbers. But if you turn it into two chunks, 12741 and 91101 as in two dates, then they're almost impossible to forget. And you could even just make them a single chunk of information by remembering it as the two big surprise attacks on American soil. You go from 12 pieces of information to really just one piece of information, right? What are the two big surprise attacks? And then from that you get uh, Pearl Harbor on September 11th, and then from that you get 12741 and 91101, and then you get 12074109101. It's a pretty sweet trick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Uh, See, so that was another one where I was like thinking I wouldn't be able to do that as much on the fly because I, but I guess it's again, it's just practice, right? Because it's like you could find a association for every number that's personal to you. Yeah, well, and the part of the numerical memorization thing is to create associations for all two-digit combinations through 100. Exactly. Right, so it's like from 0, 0 to 9, 9, you create a kind of like an image that goes with it. And then I think what he also talked about was you create like three-part images. So like every six numbers into one chunk. And then like, and this is where it gets kind of crazy, right? So imagine that for 12, you've got the image of a spoon. And then for seven, you've got the image of um, like tea. And then for 41, you've got the image of um, like pepper, right? So, but then you turn it into one image by having uh, like, and the, but the one thing I didn't get is like the orders, right? But setting that aside mm. is so you create one image which is like you know my dad's spoon feeding tea to pepper <laughs> and that's like that's all all three of those numbers combined into one image and then you have to like place that image in an order with the next set of six behind it and you kind of keep going that way and then you can 
you've basically taken six numbers and turned them into one image that you're putting into an order with the other numbers to make everything easier to remember. Right. And I think for the order part, if I'm, um, I could be mistaken and I don't know if you ever explicitly said this, but I was always thinking that these images were then put in your memory palace. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then you, you have a specific path you walk through the memory palace in. Yeah. Yeah. So there's two levels to this, right? There's, the taking the six numbers and turning them into an image, and then there's putting the images in order. Right. The order of the images is the memory palace part. Yes, exactly. Which we'll get to. I understand yeah. people listening probably don't know what the memory <laughs> palace is, but we can get, we'll get to that. But I remember how you tell the order of the six numbers within the image. Oh, I see. Which is that every pair has three possible images attached to it. And it's like a, it's something like a person, a place, and a thing, Right. So, and I think you go in whatever that order is. So you've got like the person for that number, the place for that number, the thing for that number. And so depending on where it is in the group of six, you either use its person, its place or its thing, right? Got it. So 12 could be Michael Jackson or T or I guess places don't really work because you're doing memory palace, but let's say, um, what did they use for it? This is where our memory techniques would have would have come in handy. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I I wish I had um, saved that part. I don't see it here, but let's just say there is place, right? So then twelve could stand for Michael Jackson or T or France, right? And if it's the first number in the set of three, then it's Michael Jackson. If it's the second set, if it's the second pair in the set of three, then it's you know the spoon or the T or whatever. And then if it's the third set, if it's the third pair in the set, then it becomes Paris. And so you need to have three things that you remember for each pair of numbers, which sounds like a ton. But I feel like if you practice it, it'd be pretty easy to have three associated images for each pair of numbers down fairly quickly. Yeah, it sounds bad, but it's not nearly as bad as actually having to remember these numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Like having to memorize this 12 digit string. That's yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It's also impressive. Um, I mean, he he was only spending like an hour or maybe at most two a day, right? Working on this. Yeah, he was doing it very part time. He had like other stuff going on. Right. Um, like he was a full time writer. Yeah. You know, writing articles and stuff. But it was so it sounds intimidating. And, you know, I'll be honest, I haven't created a place and, you know, like I haven't done all of this stuff for every, you know, digit between one and 100. But it's intimidating. It sounds intimidating. It seems like it's, it'll take a long time, but maybe it's one of those things that once you start working on it, you pick it up pretty quick, which is, I think, his point throughout the book is that it's not as hard to pick up as it seems. Yeah, I'd believe that. And I mean, just anecdotally from doing language stuff, right? Right. If you Even if you just take 30, 45 minutes a day to spend time in Anki or another spaced repetition system and go through all of your flashcards and if you were just looking at you know a number and an image or a set of images you would pick that up pretty quickly i think yeah it would not take that long and it's also like it must be one of the best ways to do it since this is sort of what they've settled on also based on them studying thousands of years of history of doing this right it's like these guys are constantly trying to beat each other to be the best and the fastest and this is what they've found works so Exactly. I, I, the one that I have tried and in complete transparency, I finished the book this morning, <laughs> but, uh, the one technique I have tried is there was a phone number, like a, you know, like a call dial in number that mm -hmm. I needed to use. And 
I used the memory palace tactic. Okay. And I got almost all the numbers. <laughs> oh, nice. On it. Cause I always have trouble remembering those. Right. And especially unless I like write it down somewhere else, it's like in my phone calendar. And then I got to like, you know, look at it and then type in the, you know, it's just like becomes a mess to, um, to, to do those if you're on the go, right. It's fine. If you're on a computer, it's easy, but yeah. if you're on the go on your phone, it's not as, not as fun. Cause you, you know, the access, sorry, not the dial in number, the access code is what I always have trouble. Cause you can just click on the number, but the access code is what I always have trouble remembering. So yeah, it was like a nine digit access code and I did it. I think I got up to seven before I had to look. So it was better than usual. Normally I get to like three and I'm, <laughs> I'm stuck. Yeah. It's a good start. Yeah, it's a good start. And I mean, considering that's without any practice, I feel like it's not it's not in like inconceivable that with some practice you could get pretty good at these tactics. Yeah, definitely. Cause the he uses a similar method for cards too. It's like each card represents three things as well. Yes. And then you you pull out three cards at a time and then quickly create an image using those three associated images to memorize those three cards uh, in order. And that way you can get through the entire deck of cards with just, what is it? 18 images. Sorry. Yeah. No, 17, 16, 17, but then it's, yeah. And then, yeah, there's some leftovers, right? Yeah. It's, it's 17 images plus change. I think. Yeah, you're right. There's, it's a little bit of, there's one leftover, right? 17 times three. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I mean, I think these tactics for sure, work and there there's some i think you were alluding to this a minute ago so i'm just gonna go back to it there's some sense of the lindy rule here right where these tactics have been used for a long 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 time so i mean he was citing some books that are like a couple thousand years old yeah that are yeah pushing exactly the same techniques so uh there's certainly something there the next section was fascinating too. Well, I was going to say before we go on, there's like the sure. one one other element from this, which is the importance of uh, context. Mm, yeah, where a big part of why this works is that we are really good at remembering things in context, but not really good at remembering them when they're just random information. And he gives the example of how chess masters can look at a chess board right so a a part of a game and basically memorize it pretty quickly because they know how to uh, chunk up the board into a few different sections where they've got a really good idea of what's going on in each and so they can recreate it really quickly but if you give them a basically like an impossible position or something that would never uh, happen in a real game then they just can't remember it at all right they're like completely useless they're no better than a uh, like a random person off the street trying to memorize the board And so there's this big element of putting information in relevant, like useful, familiar context makes it super easy to remember. But just trying to remember random disassociated numbers or facts is super hard. Right. And that's part of why this whole image process or this whole image association thing works, because you can take something unfamiliar and attach it to something familiar. And now it's way stickier. Right. And I think this this pretty definitively shows that our brain thinks in images or thinks a lot better in images than in words. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the next section is the one that we've touched on at least once or twice in the podcast before, because I, yeah, I found this super interesting and I think it's something that most people don't think about, but, and actually something that came up in the tower episode a few weeks ago. It did. Right. But, 
nuance and, you know, quantity of experience increases perceptual time. So he, uh, not Foyer, but Ed Cook makes this argument that life seems to speed up as we get older, just because life gets less memorable as you get older. Like life becomes more repetitive. You just do the same thing every day, even when you're in school versus at work, right? So there's a lot more nuance day to day in school. And then at work, you're mostly like waking up and going and doing the same thing every day for a year. But if you can introduce more nuance and, you know, changes in experience and different things going on, then you can actually increase your perceived longevity. You can make it feel like you are living for longer. Right. He's got this line, monotony collapses, time and novelty unfolds it. Right. Which that's is a beautiful. Actually, oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just saying that's a beautiful line. Yeah. Well, and it's it's part of why I have some, you know, qualms with the idea of flow, mm. where flow is like awesome if you want to get stuff done or be super in sync with someone and all of that. But it also makes time go by like extremely quickly. Right. And so if you're trying to optimize around being in flow all the time, I mean, you're just going to like blow through your days. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Because uh, you, you almost need a little bit of monotony to achieve flow, right? Like monotony is not the right word, but you need to be doing the same thing, right? Like you can't be in flow if you're doing 10 different things in a day. But doing 10 different things in a day will make that day seem significantly longer and like you lived much more than a day where you just do one thing and get really into flow. So... It's definitely like a big downside of that experience. Yeah, and it's less, uh, I think, about the 10 things. It's more about the novel. Like, I, I think the novelty part is important, right? Because if you're, let's say you're doing the same 10 things in the same order every single day, you'll probably go on autopilot at some point. Right. But if you're doing, and you, you might hit that flow state, right? Because, you're, hey, I'm just used to doing these 10, straight, 10 different things in this order, in this exact way. But if you're doing... You know, things one through 10 on on Monday and then things 11 through 20 on Tuesday, Tuesday is going to be nothing like Monday and it'll feel totally different. Uh, yeah, this idea, we've definitely touched on it, but I have noticed this myself too, where the years or the months even where things are all the same, I think back and I'm, I, you know, that that's when you think like, oh, where did those three months go or where did that year go? Yeah. But it's not that the year took any less time, right? It's more that it's just that you have no bookmarks to mark out that time. And yeah, I know in one way this is narrative fallacy, right? Because it's just the narrative we tell ourselves about our lives. But there's something to that in the perception of how long our lives feel. Mm -hmm. I can imagine, you know, someone working at the same company from age 22 to 65, uh, looking up at 65 and thinking, you know, it was just yesterday I was 22, Right. But if you if you live a very, you know, varied life where, you know, you might have 10 different careers in that time between your 22 and 65, uh, you know, your life could feel very, like it might feel like, oh, the job I was doing when I was 22, that was so long ago, it might as well have been in another lifetime. It's just it's all perception. It's all narrative fallacy, which is true. But it does make a difference in how you when you look back at your life and even if you're not old, even if you're like 25, right, the years, the years that you did something different or. Nat, I don't know about you. My, I feel like freshman year of college just felt so much longer than sophomore and junior year for me. Uh, it just felt very different. You know, I think that's just the novelty of it. Like everything was new in freshman year, especially first semester freshman year. Yeah, when you're first 
leaving home and living in a dorm and doing all of that. Exactly. Yeah. Like those like orientation week and the first few weeks of college just in my head feel way longer than like the entire sophomore year of college. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, I I noticed this most when I talk to friends who have had the same job since graduating, right? Versus, you know, people who are doing something more entrepreneurial and might have moved around a lot and, you know, maybe done the nomad thing or worked on different companies, stuff like that. It, It just feels like there's so much more packed into the same amount of time when you have more variety, right? I just remember I got dinner with one person who I hadn't seen in a year and they were asking me like, oh, what's new? And I had you know, been traveling for six months and started doing the agency stuff and had moved to New York and all of these things. And I was like, oh, what's new with you? And it was basically like nothing. It's like he, he was doing the same job that he'd been doing a year ago. He, you know, to be fair, like he was very happy, right? He liked his job. He liked where he was living, but same apartment, same exact job, same, like most of the same friend groups, same habits and like activities and all of that. And it just, it, that felt like, you know, I can't speak for him obviously, but I just feel like the subjective experience of that amount of time would be way faster. Um, since it's like, you know, we, we don't really experience time the way we think we do, right? We don't we like right. it, it's all just based on what we can remember. And so if you have more things to latch on to in your memory, then you have a longer perception of time, uh, which is why, you know, those days where you do a million things feel incredibly long. And the days where you just like do one thing can feel like they fly by. Right. Or I brought up this example on the the uh, the tower episode, I think, where uh, like the dating one, right, where if you go on a date to one location versus going on a date and, you know, you switch to three different locations during the date, it just feels like it was much longer, even though the time might be exactly the same. Yeah, that's a perfect example. You just have bookmarks. It's like, oh, that when we were at this place versus when we were at this other place. Yeah. And, and Ed Cook gives a great example in the book where he talks about planning parties and he says that. When he plans a party, he tries to have at least three phases to the party. And the different phases happen in mm. like different rooms, different activities and like different drinks. And you just try to make them really different. And then it feels like a massive, really long, intense party, even though it might be the same amount of time. And that's just like such a great strategy, because if you just drop everyone in a living room and give them some alcohol, it's going to be like, oh, OK, this is cool. But if you're moving them from the basement to the living room to outside and there's different things in each area and you're talking to different people, like it's going to seem like a really different experience. It's almost like going to three different parties. Yeah, it's, it really is because you, you'll remember it really distinctly. Right. Because each part will stand out for different reasons. And so you'll look back on it and not just be like, oh, that party was fun. You'll say, oh, that part was fun and that part was fun and that part was fun. I I like that idea a lot. I wish I'd read that early in my my college party planning days. (laughs) Hey, you have to learn somewhere. I got to learn it sometime. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, because there is this element of uh, it's like you can exercise daily and eat healthy and live a long life while experiencing a short one. Right. If you spend your life sitting in a cubicle passing papers, one day is bound to blend unmemorably into the next and disappear. And this is kind of like the point in the tower, right? Is that eating at the fancy restaurant or going to the fancy place or traveling internationally and all of that isn't necessarily that much more fun than staying home and watching a great movie and ordering pizza, right? Like in terms of, you know, 
serotonin release pure economic utils it's probably fairly comparable but right. the the nuance and novelty create more like memory anchors in your life more things to look back on and that is really satisfying like the remembering self is super important right exactly i know the the pushback on this is always oh well, it's just narrative fallacy which is fair it, it's true like you are just telling yourself a narrative and Sure, in the moment, like that's a really good point you just brought up. The serotonin release might be exactly the same between, you know, playing video games or going to Bali or something, right? But if in terms of memorability, like what you're going to remember 20 years from that point in time, you probably won't remember the night playing video games. Yeah, yeah, there there is value to creating those memories. And I think there's a lot of happiness in looking back on fun memories, right? Like photos are great if you can use it to remember events like you know i was hanging out with a friend last week and he showed me photos of a time that me and him and two other friends went to napa while i was living in california and i completely forgot that this trip had ever happened like i didn't believe him that it had happened at first (laughs) and then as i was looking through the photos i was like oh wow yeah okay that actually did happen (laughs) then then the memory came back to me but was there that much alcohol involved yeah there was that much wine it's But it's just funny. It's like, you know, the the documenting that stuff does, I think, make you happy, right? Yeah. You get that perception of a longer life. Definitely seems that way. But yeah, so that's the increasing perceived longevity. And then the the next section he gets into is more on the memory images. So we talked about this a bit in the beginning with the faces, but it's sort of like creating images for everything. Because, like Neil, you were pointing this out, right, that our brain definitely prefers visual information. It's just way easier to remember than than pure facts and figures. And so what they talk about in the book is that if you want to make something memorable, you have to figure out a way to turn it into an image. Uh, And that's going to make it stick way better. Right. And it can even be super, super, super simple. Like, I mean, one easy one that, so this is going to sound way too basic, but this is still it works, uh, or at least it was working when I was trying it earlier uh, for the access code example I gave you. It was as simple as putting the numbers into images and having them be on the path walking from my like front door of my parents' house to my room, mm. right? And just yeah, have yeah. them along the way. And it was that, I didn't even have to do anything. Maybe if I had made them more exciting, I would have remembered all nine. That's probably true, right? <laughs> but just even having something that simple where the the number itself is a, just an image that's floating in a place that you traditionally go to. Like, I'm trying to describe what this image is in my head, but if you imagine like a Sonic or a Mario video game, mm-hmm. right, where they're collecting like the coins or the rings, it was almost like that in my head of how the numbers were, right? So I just had to like, collect the numbers on the way to my room oh that's fun it's a good idea yeah it was it worked fairly well i was shocked that like i normally remember like three to four of the numbers and i got up to seven and then i forgot eight but still like seven was much better than usual and that's on attempt one of doing this so (laughs) but his point here is that the more the funnier the looter the more bizarre the better uh for the images that you create because again our minds, they like to remember novelty, right? They have a propensity to remember novelty. So if something is ordinary, uh, something we see every day, there's we're much less likely to, to remember it. 
there's probably a good evolutionary tangent. Well, yeah, if you saw something kind of crazy in the wild, you would want to remember it. But if you just see like more grass, right, that's not super (laughs) useful data for your brain to hold on to. (laughs) Right. And the brain is an expensive organ. I think he mentions that fairly early on how the brain, I forget how much mass it takes up, but I believe it takes up 20% of our energy consumption or approximately 20% of our energy consumption. Yeah, that's what I've heard too. Which is high. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it only weighs a few pounds, but then it uses yeah. a disproportionate amount of the energy that we consume. And so it's got to triage a little bit what it holds on to. And so it's going to discard like junk data, basically, which is also why you forget your dreams right when you wake up, because it your brain's yep. treating it as junk data, right? Like you have to train yourself to remember them to make your brain think they're important, uh, kind of like you have to do with this stuff. Yeah, if somebody writes down their dreams, then you're obviously more likely to remember them. Right. It helps. Because you're tricking your brain that they're important. Trick your brain, exactly. Uh, the, the other thing he mentions here for creating these images that I think is funny is how it helps to make them dirty, right? So if you can make yeah. the, the, the memory palace or the, the visualizations kind of like dirty or lewd or sexual, they're much more memorable, uh, which I guess also kind of makes sense evolutionarily too, right? Exactly. Well, because that's what our brains probably cared a lot about as social creatures, right? Like who was having sex with whom and... Yeah. Well, and for ourselves, right? It's like the the prime motivation, right? Reproduction. Exactly. Wise, selfish genes. So you're going to remember information related to that much more than information on like, you know, where the biggest rock is. Exactly. I I just realized too, I could have maybe remembered the nine numbers easier if I just had three sets of threesomes going on (laughs) between numbers. Yeah, three sets of triple numbers. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I do when I need to remember a long piece of information. If I'm doing seven digits, I'll try to remember like three, two, two. And I find mm-hmm. that's much easier than trying to remember individual digits. Right, so then you're chunking them together. Yeah, chunking it. Uh, well, the other, uh, the other element in here too with this memory images is how using multiple senses also helps. So not just having it be an image, but if you can imagine a smell and a feeling and a sound to go with it, or even a taste, right. I suppose, then that makes it even more memorable, right? It, it creates like this multi-sensory experience to go with it that will make it stand out even more in your head. Right, exactly, exactly. And there are other things that have talked about uh, other senses being tied to memory probably even more strongly than images like uh we've all we've all had this experience where you sniff something or you smell something and it brings back a memory that you had not thought about for years i'm sure you've had that experience Nat. oh yeah or if you listen to a song or yeah you listen to a song i mean songs are particularly interesting because you can listen to a song you haven't heard in 10 years and still remember the words yeah so songs have that effect too where you can be listening to a song that you haven't heard in years and it just instantly transports you back to where wherever you were when you first heard that song or uh, whatever you've associated in your mind with that song. I've noticed that with books and with podcast episodes too. If I go back and re-listen to a podcast episode, I can remember exactly where I was when I listened to it the first time. And if I'm looking at my notes for a book, I can usually remember where I was when I first read it as well, which is kind of fun. Hmm. That's really cool. Actually, later on in the book, he has something from Montaigne. Do, do you remember that part where he was writing at the um, end of each book? 
No, what does he say? So Montaigne has a famous essay, Montan. which, um, yeah, Montan, Montan, right? I think it's Montan, yeah. Montan, okay. So Montan has a has an essay, which I've read this essay, but uh, he has hundreds of essays, so it's going to take a lifetime to read all of them. <laughs> but he has this one essay about the futility of reading quantity, so of trying to read everything, basically. There's, you know, the more you read, the more there is to read. Yeah. Uh, we've all had that feeling, all of us readers, which if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a reader. So he has this, he had this tactic that he would use to try to combat that, which was he would write at the end of each book on at the end of the volume, basically when he finished reading it, he would write what his thoughts were at that exact moment in time. So without reflecting, basically. So after, right after he finished, he would write that this little, you know, paragraph or snippet of what he thought about it, what his feelings are. And what he found is going back because he found he was getting very little retention, right? As he tried Mm -hmm. to speed up his reading and trying to do more. He wasn't remembering what he was reading. So he found that having this little snippet at the end, he could go back and as he was reading that snippet, it would transport him back to his feelings of uh, when he was reading that book, right? So it would sort of be that cue that he needed to get back in that state of mind or or just remember a lot of the things from the book. So he just needed that cue, right? And the snippet was just the cue that got him back to that, that frame of mind. That makes sense. I mean, that's what I noticed from doing my book notes is that if I if I can go to my book notes and I can even just look at the highlighted parts, which is the smallest, you know, amount of the notes from the book, and it'll bring back almost everything important in the book really quickly. Like it's incredibly efficient for, you know, rapidly uh, remembering, you know, the the core points of the book, even if I haven't touched it in years. Yep. I, I feel like it's even more useful if you because, I mean, I, I cheat a little bit where I don't actually write anything new. You know, I'm not like adding my own context to it most of the time. Sometimes I'll add little notes, but it's usually just, you know, copy and pasting out chunks of the or sections from the book and then bolding them and highlighting them. But I feel like if you can go a step beyond that and do what Montan Montaigne was doing and like write out your own little summary notes, that's super helpful, too. Yeah, I do that for, so for my book notes, I add little snippets of my own thoughts on the different sections, but it makes it take so long. So that's why I don't do them yeah. that as often. Like I have, I have notes, but I usually don't, it, it's hard to turn them into posts. But what I have found, the ones, the books that I do that for, the retention is like through the roof, right? So right. I find that the books, pretty much the only books I think about on a regular basis I don't know if I choose to do the book notes because I'm thinking about them on a regular basis or if the directional flow is the other way. But I have found, you know, 12 Rules for Life, Way of Zen, Skin in the Game, Elephant in the Brain. You know, these are some of the recent ones, right? In the recent meaning the last few months that I've I've done. And I feel like those have higher retention than some of the other books that even if we've recorded podcast episodes on and I took notes on, uh, maybe listening to the podcast would take me back in, in that zone. But I don't have that same auto recall as I do for those other ones because, you know, I think my 12 rules for life one was like, I want to say almost 10,000 words or something. Yeah. <laughs> Granted, a lot of that is pulled from the book, but there's still a decent amount of commentary in there. Right. And then your tactic for taking book notes is a bit tied to repetition, right? Where you go through the book notes and highlight and then bold or you bold and then highlight, right? Yeah, so I do it in three phases. So like phase one is just pull out all of the important sections or, you know, the highlights. And then phase two is to go through and bold everything. And then phase or bold the important parts of those highlights. And then 
uh, phase three is to highlight the most important parts of the bolded sections. So uh, that gives me like three layers of notes on the books. So uh, I guess technically layer one would be the whole book. Layer two is everything that I pulled out of the book. Layer three is what's bolded. Layer four is what's highlighted of what's bolded. And then every now and then I'll add a layer five, which is adding like a little summary at the top of the the note never know. And this is just based on a method that Tiago Forte has come up with. And that's it's just like incredibly helpful for, you know, one, the process of doing it forces me to digest the book like multiple times in a short time period, which helps me remember it. And then two, going back through it later, it's so fast to grab the most important points, uh, especially compared to if I just pulled out the highlights and I had to like try to skim through everything. It makes the skimming extremely fast, right. basically. That's that's the main benefit. And I would imagine we, well, because I do this, so I'm not even imagining. I know I do this, <laughs> where I'll highlight something, but then the book tends to go into more detail on it later. So some of my highlights are, right, you know, repetition, or maybe the first one shouldn't have even been highlighted because it wasn't detailed enough. Or, you know, there's all sorts of things. There's like in the highlights that are just, you initially think, oh, wow, this is so profound. And then they go into way more detail later. And then you feel dumb for highlighting it before. <laughs> but you don't go back and take it out, or at least I don't. I, I do in my notes in Evernote. I don't you know, take it out of the book highlighting. But when I'm doing it in Evernote, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I really didn't need to make that note earlier because he explains it better down here. Right, exactly. Yeah. I don't know what that has to do with memory palaces, but anyway, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say this ties in pretty well to the next section on uh, the method of loci. Because that's sort of like using memory images based on your environment, which is super cool because it's like that's how the memory palace works. But you can also do it in the world around you. So, you know, if you have to remember something for a short period or if you're trying to memorize a speech, you know, you can take something that represents part of the thing you're having to remember and put it in areas in your environment. Right. So, like, if you're trying to memorize a speech, you might go to where you're going to give the speech from and place something that represents an idea of the speech or a point of the speech in some part of the audience area, like in your mind, so that when you look out, you can imagine your different points placed around the auditorium. That's a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what he says Cicero did, I think, is... Uh, let's see. Cicero suggests that an orator delivering a speech should make one image for each major topic he wants to cover and place each of those images at a locus. So, you know, imagine like a five point star or something in in the audience and put one of the major points at each point of the star and then just work your way through it to keep yourself on track. Like that's super helpful. I, I've I've heard this for like dance type stuff too. If trying to remember a dance. Um placing parts of the dance in your mind in different corners of the room based on the directions you should be turning like that can be very helpful mm, that makes a ton of sense too because otherwise it, you're just doing like rote memorization which as we've discussed you know on the on this podcast and he goes into a ton of detail in the book why that's not a good tactic for remembering anything because it just stays in short-term memory yeah when the the one downside with the method of loci in your physical environment though is that if you have to go somewhere else, it might mess you up, right? Because you don't have the same triggers anymore. Mm, yeah. Which is, I think, why they they talk so much about the memory palace is that it can be like a hyper-vivid visual space in your head 
that you can place memories and ideas and stuff in uh, so that you do not need to uh, rely on being in a certain physical environment to remember stuff. I think that's part of the real power of it. It's also, you know, an auditorium might be a really boring place to try to stick memories in, right? It could just, it's probably just <laughs> right. seats and walls. And for all you know, you're going to, especially now, you would get up there and get ready to give your speech, and then you've got the bright lights on you and you can't see shit. Right. right exactly. And that could really like phase you. So I guess. The memory palace goes with you. Yeah, the memory palace goes with you. And you can make it as crazy and detailed and everything as you want. So it gets way stickier. Right, exactly. So this actually leads nicely into the next section on remembering numbers, which we started on earlier. And this explains, this was the section I was trying to find earlier. So I'm, I'm glad we found this. So I, I'm just going to read from the book. It's a little bit long, but he explains it really well. Uh, it's called the PAO or Person Action Object System. So for every two-digit number from 00 to 99, uh, it's represented by a single image of a person performing an action on an object. The number 34 might be Frank Sinatra, a person crooning an action into a microphone, an object. Likewise, 13 might be David Beckham kicking a soccer ball. The number 79 could be Superman flying with a cape. Any six-digit number, like 34, 13, 79, can then be turned into a single image by combining the person from the first number with the action from the second and the object from the third. In this case, it would be Frank Sinatra kicking a cape. <laughs> if the number were instead 79, 34, 13, the mental athlete might imagine the equally bizarre image of Superman crooning at a soccer ball. There's nothing inherently Sinatra-ish about the number 34 or Beckham-esque about 13. These associations are entirely arbitrary and have to be learned in advance, which is to say it takes a lot of remembering just to be able to remember. There's a big fixed cost in terms of time and effort to compete on the memory circuit, but what makes the system so potent is that it effectively generates a unique image for every number from 0 to 999,999. And because the algorithm necessarily generates unlikely scenes, PAO images tend by their nature to be memorable, which is pretty cool. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, you just memorize 100 images and you can, you know, quickly remember any digit uh, from, you know, zero to one shy of a million. So like six random numbers become one simple image, which means that, you know, you could memorize hundreds and hundreds of numbers much quicker just by creating these crazy images and putting them in your palace and walking through it. And it looks like you can use the PAO system for the cards, too. Right. So you can take each of the 52 cards and associate its own person action object with it. So any triplet of cards can be combined into a single image and a full deck can be just 18 images since you've got 17 combos and then the last card would just be itself, which is a, like a really neat system. <laughs> and again, like we were saying before, it's a lot of work up front. But once you've done the work and you've practiced applying it, I can see how it would make you really fast at creating images, putting them in a memorable order, and then using them to recite back whatever it is you're trying to memorize. Right, which is probably the only way people can get to the like just ridiculous number of card decks that they can memorize in such a short period of time. Yeah. <laughs> like when they start talking about some of the world records, right? It's what was the number of decks? Was it twenty-two? decks of cards in like an hour uh, something like that is a crazy number yeah yeah that's wild i can't even imagine memorizing one deck of cards like that seems like that would be really hard yeah let me i'm gonna look up the world record here 
And this book's from 2011, I think, or 12. So, Okay, so the, the speed record is 21.9 seconds for memorizing a deck of cards. Oh, my God. <laughs> so two cards per second. Wow, somebody got 16.96 seconds. Jeez. That's ridiculous. Most digits memorized in five minutes is 520. Wow. Jeez. That's pretty cool. Were any of those set by Americans? Uh, that last one was. Interesting. I, I guess America is is more uh, more competitive now. There's some guy, Alex Mullen, who's a memory grandmaster. He's from America. Oh, he's he was born in 92. He's young. Wow. He's a three-time world memory champion. Huh. Wow. So I guess ever since this book, there's the uh, the American reputation has changed. Yeah, exactly. This guy holds 11 different records, all related to playing cards. Hmm. He's the first to memorize more than 3,000 decimals in one hour. Wow. Jeez. Yeah, and just to give context to that comment, I just made throughout the book, uh, all these characters are just like, the the especially the non-American characters are basically... They keep telling Josh that he has a good chance of winning the American championship because the American championship is nowhere near as as hard as the European one or the world one. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess that's changed. This is crazy. Uh, he also set a world record for most historic dates memorized. He did 133 dates. I don't know what the time frame for that was. And then his 60 minute number record is 3,238 digits. Wow. Yeah. And in five minutes, he did 568. And his speed card record is 15.6 seconds. That's bonkers. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway, check out Alex Mullen. Yeah, we'll have to put that in the show notes on MadeYouThinkPodcast.com. Also, we, we should mention, because this hasn't come up yet, Ed Cook is the founder of uh, Memrise, if anyone's familiar with that company. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. That's That's incredible. I've definitely heard of that company. Yeah, so Memorize is like a site for learning. It's originally it was for learning anything. Now it's focused more on languages. Right. But it basically like helps you learn languages using the techniques that Cook is teaching to Foyer in this book. So uh, it's very much focused on using images and like strong visuals to associate with words and phrases uh, to help you remember them instead of just doing like rote translation and memorization. So if you, if you use the app, you'll actually see a lot of stuff familiar uh, to what we've been talking about in this book. Ed seems like a cool guy. Like I know this is might be the start of a tangent, but he seems like cool, but I probably don't think I could be like long, you know, good friends, close friends with him, but he'd be fun <laughs> to hang out with for like one crazy evening. Yeah. Well, he... Uh, <laughs> He did an interview on uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast really early on in the show's life. It was pretty good, too. Really? All right. I'm going to dig that up and listen to it. Because if you look at Tim Ferriss's old stuff, he actually references Ed Cook and this book a few times. I think that's how I found it originally. This does seem like something Tim Ferriss would be into. Yeah. Well, he's got he he jacked some of it in Four Hour Chef. He basically like copy and pasted a small part of this book into his book. But basically, some of the stuff we just talked about and how he would use it to memorize things. So I think that's how he was able to get Ed Cook on the show. But it was a pretty good interview. Hmm. And looking at Memorize, I just uh, I was just on Wikipedia. Uh, I think I've tried it before and I remember it being very different than like Duolingo. Yeah. It's a different tactic. Yeah, it's it's different because it's got the whole like, uh, like very visual side to it. It's less of Duolingo is more like memorize -y. Right. Yeah, it's less uh, text-based, it seemed. 
Yeah, exactly. So, which seems to be right in line with all the stuff that's talked about here. Yeah. Cool, cool. Should we move on to good practice and learning? Yeah. Well, and this is where it was where the book kind of got more meta, which I thought was interesting because he he digs much more into just like general learning advice and techniques. And, and this was I thought this part was cool too because he actually he being Foyer reaches out to Anders Ericsson, which is the guy who did all of the research on learning and expertise that was the basis for Malcolm Gladwell's stuff in Outliers, um, which Gladwell mostly got wrong, unfortunately. (laughs) And then uh, Erickson wrote another book called Peak, going deeper on a lot of this stuff. But Foyer talks to him here, basically just like trying to learn how he can learn faster and then talks about it a lot. Uh, in this section of the book, because I guess he basically hits a plateau where he learns a ton in the beginning and then he kind of gets stuck and he can't get much further ahead. And what was kind of cool about this is that a lot of the research, the original research that Erickson bases this advice on is stuff that he did at CMU, where Neil and I both went to college in in what sounds like some of the most boring experiments ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember reading about yeah. that. Yep. He literally just had this one undergrad come in and try to memorize numbers. (laughs) So the kid would come in and Erickson would give him a string of numbers and the kid would get like seven of them and then forget. And then he'd get eight and then he'd get seven again. And then maybe he got nine and then seven. And they did this for months, literally months. And eventually the guy got up to like over a hundred. I think he was one of the, uh, like one of the early people to do that. And I think he was doing it mostly by brute force, right? He was just sl- slowly getting better at chunking and memorizing chunks, right? So he eventually figured out he could put them in pairs and then triplets and all right. of that. And that really started to help him. But it kind of revealed to Erickson some of this stuff around learning, right? That, you know, one, you're not really fixed in your abilities for the to a certain degree, right? You can learn how to do a lot of this stuff. And two, that there are these shortcuts to get around some of the limitations to our working memory right exactly uh do you know what year that experiment was did it say anything about that in the book i don't it it's in peak but i don't remember the the year off the top of my head yeah we've talked about peak a few times on the podcast but i think one major point that comes across in this same section of the book is you know it's not about the number of hours nearly as much as the quality of those of those hours yeah exactly right so that whole ten thousand hours thing is I mean, you could spend 20,000 hours on something, but if the quality is not, if it's not focused, deliberate practice, uh, those 20,000 hours are not going to get you all that far. Right. And I like that there are these three stages that they talk about in, you know, Mm -hmm. learning and practicing. And so I'll read from the book here and these are jumping around a bit, but during the first phase, known as the cognitive stage, you're intellectualizing the task and discovering new strategies to accomplish it more proficiently. During the second associative stage, you're concentrating less, making fewer major errors, and generally becoming more efficient. Finally, you reach the autonomous stage, when you figure that you've gotten as good as you need to get at the task and you're basically running on autopilot. You could call it the okay plateau, the point at which you decide you're okay with how good you are at something, turn on autopilot and stop improving. This is the big problem for most learning processes and why we tend to plateau is that we we hit this point where unconsciously, right? Nobody consciously says, oh, I'm good enough now. But on an unconscious level, right. they you know say like, oh, okay, I can 
perform proficiently well at this. I don't need to get any better. And so they stop learning, right? Uh, like driving is the perfect example. Most people don't really get any better at driving the longer they do it. They reach a point sufficiently good to survive and then they stay there or get slowly worse over time. Right. Yeah. There's a related concept, which I don't know if you remember uh, a few years ago, Justin wrote a blog post about, uh, I think it was called Fight Through the Suck. Yeah. I remember the the title. I don't remember the contents. Well, the contents were were basically when you deliberately try to get better at something you might actually initially get worse. Uh, and he used like, you know, worse from an objective standpoint, but not necessarily, you're not actually getting worse. So the example he gave was lifting, mm-hmm. where when you, you actually learn how to lift with proper technique, your numbers will probably go down significantly. Right. <laughs> so to an outsider's appearance, right? They're like, well, last week you were benching, you know, 200 and now you're benching like 135 and struggling <laughs> or something, right? But- uh, that's not actually the case. You're not actually getting worse. But his point was um, the idea of like local maxima mm-hmm. and uh, how to get out of that, right? And sometimes you need to go down to go up. But I found that concept to be somewhat similar to the OK plateau where, you know, I could see somebody just getting frustrated uh, that they get stuck at that local maxima, right? And and then that's kind of like the OK plateau where you just say, OK, I'm good enough. I'm lifting enough or, you know, my writing is good enough or I'm typing fast enough or my driving is good enough. but you could get better, but it's not going to be enjoyable in the short term, right? And that's what the suck part is. Well, and you have to almost make it deliberately more difficult for yourself, which is one of the things Erickson talks about in Peak and that Foyer brings up in the book, right? Where he, he gives the example that he would uh, have to, he would get a metronome and you have to try to memorize a card every time the metronome clicked. And then once he figured out his limit, he would set the metronome 10 to 20% faster uh, in order to mm. make himself start failing, right? Because that was a good way for him to create artificial struggle and like make himself more challenged. Right. I remember in peak, Erickson had a few of those for getting the kid to memorize cards faster, where he would, let's see, what would he do? He would like read off the numbers much faster. So he wouldn't give him as much time to memorize them. And then he would read them like super slowly, give him tons of time. Or he would, what were some of the other ones? He had like a bunch of ways of breaking up the plateau. You know, I'm just going to pull up my peak notes because I've got them right here. <laughs> How convenient. Well, maybe we should just do peak at some point. Oh, definitely. All right. So here's a sneak peak. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I, I had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. I didn't even see that coming. That was great. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So here, here was it. Um, slowing down a lot so that you can memorize more cards, right? To prove that it's not the number of cards, the problem is the speed or speeding up a lot to see how far you can get by going faster than you normally would. Um, doing it in new situations, right? So like cold or in a sauna or something like that. Um, obviously getting feedback from someone to help you improve or like where you might not be doing as well as you could. And then... The other big thing was just figuring out like where the weaknesses are through changing up the environment and then designing practice to focus specifically on those weaknesses, right? So is it the number of cards that's the issue? Is it the speed that's the issue? Is it anything else that's holding you back? And then how do you kind of like create 
more stress on that part so that you have to get better at it and you kind of break out of that that okay plateau yeah exactly i'm really curious to do this book now because i feel like we've looked at a lot of the concepts but we've never well at least i've never read the book it sounds like you've definitely read the book but i've never actually read this book and the concepts come up very very frequently for us yeah well it's a big i mean it's it's the deliberate practice book Right. Like it's the book on deliberate practice. And that's such a big topic now, I feel, especially since people are getting more into teaching themselves things. And for anything skill based, you need some element of deliberate practice in there uh, if you want to keep getting better at it. So it's a it's a really good book for anyone who's kind of like self-motivated to learn. And Moonwalking with Einstein was actually how I found that book <laughs> because he references Erickson in here and then. I remember I read it and Peak was not out at that point. And so I Googled Erickson but I, and I saw that he had a book coming out. And so I think I pre-ordered it and then read it right when it came out. And I was really happy with it. We should invite Gladwell to discuss that book with us. Uh, there's actually some really funny stuff <laughs> online. Like if you look up, if you Google 10,000 hour rule, a lot of the first results are basically pointing out that Gladwell got it wrong. And you can read Gladwell's responses to them. And he just sounds kind of like, bitter and annoyed about the whole thing <laughs> yeah gladwell I, I i've read some of his stuff and I, I mean he's a master at telling a story and weaving together a narrative but it's kind of unfortunate that the ten thousand hours thing is so mainstream yeah just because yeah it just seems it just doesn't seem right like it just doesn't seem true <laughs> yeah well i mean it just it isn't right it's like right got that wrong and i think a lot of the narrative stuff that yeah, well, we don't have to go down the the Gladwell rabbit hole, uh, but yes, he's he's the expert at narrative fallacy. <laughs> yeah, well, I think well, there's that, but I think the reason that it caught on is just ten thousand hours is such a clean number mm-hmm. to point to, and it's an easy soundbite, and it's a great headline. I think that's probably more of much of it, right? Is that it just lends itself to it's just easy to remember. Like once you hear that, you're like, oh yeah, ten thousand hours, right? And it's like so easy to repeat. Two hours a day for 5,000 days and you're there. Right, exactly. (laughs) I'm an expert at sleeping. (laughs) Tens of thousands of hours. I am so good at going to the bathroom. (laughs) It's probably a world sleeping championship. Amazing at going on tangents. (laughs) Well, yeah, we're... How many hours of audio do you think we have? We're definitely over 100. Yeah, we're well over 100. Um between the the bonus material that you can get in the Patreon and the actual episodes. I mean, this is episode 54, I think. Something like that. Yeah, we we average around probably like hour 45 when you factor in the long ones. So, yeah. Yeah, so then plus the bonus, so maybe two hours per. Eh. Yeah, probably got over 100 hours. Just another 100 years of doing this and we'll be at our 10,000 hours. Yeah, we'll be, we'll be <laughs> set. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that was a lot of the main stuff of the book. Was there anything else that you felt like we should touch on? Um, no, I think, I mean, just other than all these concepts, I think the the narrative, which we've touched on as well, is just, it's very well written. It, You know, I got the sense that he has written for like long form articles for online, you know, publications. And he mentioned Slate, um, you know, I've, I've seen he's, he's gotten bylines at a few other places. Yeah, You could get that sense from even this book, right? It doesn't read like somebody who has written tons of research backed, like dense volumes. It reads like, it reads like somebody who has had to keep people's attention on the internet. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it doesn't get, bo- it doesn't get boring really at any point. No, it's, it's a great story. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's worth reading even just for that. And then these tactics, you know, are just even better. Um, Nat, do you have any, and I know he has, he has references in the back of the book. Do you have any books you've read that were specifically about memory, like nonfiction tactics related after reading this one? Or, cause I saw a lot of the people he talks about have books about memory. Uh, like I think Ed Cook has one. And then there was that sort of charlatan type guy. I don't know if that guy's a charlatan or not, so I shouldn't say that. But Oh yeah, the the faker who was saying he like Oh, that guy. Yeah. Oh, that guy was that was a great story too. <laughs> that guy was definitely a charlatan. The one who said the epilepsy thing? That's the one you're talking about? The one the one who said the what thing? The one who said he had like that seizure at age 4. Yeah, and then he had perfect memory ever since. Yep. Yeah. That could, that was pretty ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I I don't I haven't read any other memory books. I I know there's one that's something like how to train how to train your mind i god i can't remember the title of it ed cook has one called remember remember called remember remember yeah it's called remember remember okay i was just on his wikipedia page so cool let me just make sure that's right yeah it's called remember remember learn the stuff you thought you never could huh okay i don't know if it's any good i just that's what his book is yeah i think that after i read this i bought one of the books that was highly recommended, but I just can't remember what it was called. <laughs> That's ironic. No, I I, I remember because it's like a terrible, it's a fairly weak name. It's literally called The Memory Book, The Classic Guide to Improving Your Memory at Work, at School, and at Play. I have not read it, but I've heard really, really good things. Interesting. And it's got like over a million copies sold, so it's probably something valuable in it. Yeah, I was just going to wonder if there's anything we can point point the listeners to if they're interested in diving deeper into these techniques yeah but i mean the i would say this book is like the best place to start it's really good it's really fun definitely learn a lot from it so yeah also it was it just me or did it seem like those championships were televised i bet you could find them on youtube i bet if we went and looked online for international memory championships we would find them let's see yeah (laughs) yep god i love the internet (laughs) yeah there's lots of videos USA Memory Championship 2014, 2015. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Not a a ton of views. That's not terribly surprising. No, I I can't imagine it's a huge following. It's definitely a bunch of like just memory nerds watching each other. Yeah. Oh, Josh Foyer has a TED Talk too. Oh, interesting. I wonder if he kept up with any of this stuff. Like, did he continue doing competitions? I know at the end he said he wasn't doing it the following year, but I don't know if that changed. No, good question. I guess he made enough money. (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's true he got a pretty big advance for the book so and supposedly the film might be coming at some point yeah there may be a film so that would be cool yeah we saw we saw on wikipedia that the film rights were picked up by uh columbia pictures so um maybe they'll make it into a movie it could be an interesting movie just given all the characters involved yeah especially if you know if they made it kind of like funny and lighthearted, almost like uh 21 you seen 21 exactly I'm actually picturing I'm picturing Ed Cook being played by like James Franco or somebody like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Somebody kind of trolly. That would be fun. I would watch that. That'd be a good time. I feel like Michael Sarah could be in that movie. <laughs> it's Josh Foyer. He he would be like an odd nerdy memory person. Yep. <laughs> Damn, this this is a great cast. I hope this happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, once they get the made you think bump. There we go. Yeah. Then they'll be like, oh, we really gotta do this movie. Yep. Yeah. Because we know James Franco's listening to this, so... Hey, James. <laughs> Go make it happen. Exactly. Uh, all right. But yeah, no, I, I highly recommend this book. Uh, it's one of those that, you know, you don't 
just need to listen to the episode. You can also go read the book, uh, get a lot out of it. Get get the story part. Get the story, yeah, because we didn't go fully into the story, and you know we certainly couldn't do it justice on the podcast because there's there's so many interesting characters. You just have to you just have to read it. Yep. But we also recorded a good amount of bonus material for this episode. Exactly. And so if you want that, you can go to patreon.com slash made you think where we've got the bonus material. We've got our book notes that we use for the show, uh, as well as a place that, you know, we can all hang out and talk about the the books and the episodes after they come out. So, uh, yeah, you can get that at patreon.com slash made you think it's the best way to support the show. Don't want to run ads on and- you guys. Um, oh, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, if they also want to be part of the monthly hangout. That's true. They should join the Patreon. And so there's two tiers to the Patreon. There's the $5 tier. It gets you access to all the stuff Nat was mentioning. Um, and then the $10 tier, you get all the stuff from the $5 tier, but you also get to join our monthly hangout. Um, so I guess by the time they hear this, there would have been two already. This one might come out. Yeah, this will come out on the 11th. So you'll actually have like a few days. Yep. To get in, because I think we're doing the next one on the 13th. Yep, you're right. Yeah, so you might actually be able to join our September one. Yeah. Uh, if you join very soon. Actually, no, you know what? We're doing it on the 12th. It'll be t- it'll be tomorrow for <laughs> you who are listening to this. So you better hurry up. I guess I, we didn't plan that, by the way. <laughs> like, oh, As you can tell. Act now. Right? Lock in this price act before now. it's gone. <laughs> yeah, because tomorrow it's going up to $15. Exactly. No, just, <sighs> just kidding. Well, but as long as it stays small enough, we can we can do live, you know, we can bring everyone on and actually talk. Eventually, we'll have to just like take questions by message. But for now, it's still small enough that we can all actually hang out, which is fun. So yeah, the first one was a blast. I thought it was really cool. First one was a lot of fun. Yeah, we was basically, you know, people, it was just a nice, you know, hour, probably hour and a half conversation. Yep. Just going through books and life and people from all over the world, even though it's not a, you know, massive group right now. We still got, you know, representation from Canada, I believe, and the UK and yeah. the US. So yeah, three different countries. Apparently, it's really weird listening to us not on uh, 1.2x or higher. I guess nobody listens at normal <laughs> speed. So I think, I think we sounded stupid at our normal talking voices. Uh, it's okay. Probably. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> but yeah, so patreon.com slash made you think. Support the show. Yep, exactly. And you can also go to made you think podcast.com to get the show notes and the links and all the good stuff that we've mentioned during this article uh, this episode to get all the links to the articles not this is not an article um but you can get links to all the articles that we've mentioned during this episode on madethinkpodcast.com and you can also support the show in a few other ways there so you can go to just madethinkpodcast.com slash support uh, and there's links to a whole bunch of different ways to support the show uh, if you don't want to join the patreon or even if you're on the patreon you can support the show in additional ways at that link and last, I suppose, just tell your friends, let them know that you're enjoying this podcast and listening to it. Uh, that's the best way for you to, or it's the, the best other non-financial related way to support the show. Because, <laughs> you know, yeah, we, we mostly grow by, by word of mouth, people telling their friends. If you've got a blog or a podcast yourself and want to mention it there, obviously, that would be amazing. And we would love you forever. And you can always hit us up on Twitter. And I'm at Nat Eliason. I'm at the real Neil S. Uh, and yeah, just to follow up on Nat's point, everybody, I think so far, pretty much everyone's heard about us through word of mouth. Yeah, or, or Amazon book reviews. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, just uh, that's the best way. And and if you haven't done it yet, um, I know a lot of you guys have already done it, but if you haven't, uh, you can you should also go to iTunes and leave us a review there uh, because it'll help us get some 
cool guests on this show. We were talking in the bonus material um, about some potential future guests. Yeah. So there's a lot of good ideas. And I think having a lot of reviews on iTunes will definitely go a long way to convincing those guests that you guys actually exist. Absolutely. So, well, with that, we will see you next week. We got a exciting episode next week. So definitely, definitely tune in. Yep. Next week's going to be epic. So get ready. Get ready. All right. See you, everyone. See you guys next time.